Hello there. I'm Toby Haydock, and you haven't been touching the controls, have you? Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what, and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about things going wrong, but actually isn't that what makes life exciting? Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your Doctor Quinn from your planet Quinnis, then you're extremely welcome on this odyssey behind the scenes, which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's an instalment created out of many of the ingredients that have blighted Doctor Who over the years, yet which, somehow, seem to be part and parcel of its brilliance. Lack of time, lack of money, and hasty improvisation with scant resources. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what, and when of Doctor Who, the edge of destruction. Or have you clocked that we might be in trouble? First broadcast on the 8th of February, 1964, at 5.15pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman. It was written by David Whittaker, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Richard Martin. It was watched by 10.4 million people, and the audience appreciation was 61. A mighty explosion rocks the TARDIS, knocking the entire crew unconscious. When they awake, they start behaving very oddly. Ian and Barbara have a strange, stilted conversation, whilst Susan finds the food machine is sending out contradictory signals. The TARDIS doors open of their own accord, but close again when Ian approaches them. The Doctor has hurt his head, and there's a tense, uneasy atmosphere. Susan threatens Ian with a pair of scissors, and the crew muse on whether someone or some force might have entered the TARDIS when the doors opened. The scanner isn't proving trustworthy either, showing contradictory images including a shot of a planet and starscape that then fade out after a blinding flash. The Doctor accuses the schoolteachers of sabotage and all the clocks and watches in the ship begin to melt as if time itself were collapsing. The When 16th of October BBC Head of Programmes Donald Bavistock issues a memo indicating that he will only commit to 13 weeks of Doctor Who. Despite the initial planning and indeed some trade announcements that this will be a year-long series of serials. The budget, particularly that for the TARDIS set, has alarmed him somewhat. At this point, script editor David Whittaker has a roster of three serials on the schedule. The first four-part story, part one introductory, three parts cave peopling, Terry Nation's seven-parter featuring the Daleks, and John Lucarotti's A Journey to Cathay, which will become Marco Polo, which is also scheduled at seven episodes. Four, seven and seven into thirteen won't go. Bavistock's memo is really very late in the day, and the numbers he requires don't tally with what the team have ready to go. 22nd of October. Head of Planning Joanna Spicer holds a meeting with Head of Drama Donald Wilson, Forward Planning Manager John Mayer, Producer Verity Lambert 
and Head of Visual Effects Jack Kine and others about the practicalities of the new series, which is to debut in just one month. With 13 episodes only required initially now, and these needing to come in at a budget of around £2,500 each, the team needs something that they don't currently have, because what they do have is those first three stories and Robert Gould's Minuscules adventure, which is coming in at four episodes, Anthony Coburn's Robot Story, which is six, Malcolm Hulk's six-part Hidden Planet tale, Terry Nation's seven-episode The Red Fort, and a four-part science fiction story as yet undecided. As a fallout from this meeting, it is decided that rather than truncate anything currently being planned or worked on, the most convenient solution is to utilise the person best placed, in terms of practicality and understanding, and most expedient, script editor David Whittaker, to write a two-episode story which will be a killer of a commission for an outside freelancer at this stage. For financial reasons, using only the existing TARDIS set for this pithy adventure is also deemed to be necessary. Richard Martin, not yet attached to direct the serial, has some ideas about the phony science that can be used to explain the TARDIS, which might well be useful for the contents of this serial. Were they not utterly bonkers and sensibly not incorporated by Whittaker into his episodes? 1st of November And so, sometime between Bavistock's commitment, or lack of, and today, a solution has been found to this numerical problem and slotted in after the caveman story and Terry Nation's Dalek script is now to be found a third serial, by Whittaker, called Doctor Who Inside the Spaceship. The director assigned is Paddy Russell. Paddy is a constriction of Patricia, and Russell is one of the BBC's few female directors. She has science fiction clout and no shortage of formidableness, having assisted and sometimes scrapped with the legendary Rudolf Cartier on his 1950s Quatermass productions. The amended version of Donald Wilson's promotional document from the 30th of July is put together by Lambert, listing just the first, potentially at this stage, only three adventures for Doctor Who, the last of which is described as Doctor Who and his companions find themselves facing a terrifying situation within the ship itself. 21st of November. A memo is issued to many concerned parties that the recording of every scheduled Doctor Who episode from part four of the first Dalek serial onwards will now be bumped a week thanks to the need to re-record that serial's opening instalment. It is also on this day that David Whittaker writes to Donald Wilson his concerns about the cast, and particularly Jacqueline Hill. With uncertainty about the show's future, they are looking for work beyond it. It seems that as a result of this, and perhaps Wilson's faith in the show as well, that Wilson persuades Bavistock to grant the series a further run of 13 episodes at around this time. And so Whittaker's two-parter doesn't end up as the last ever Doctor Who story, how this affects Whittaker's scripting is anybody's guess, but originally, could the ship, after its misbehaviour, have ended up back in London, 1963 at the end, and thus concluded a very short adventure in space and time for Doctor Who, Ian Chesterton, Barbara Wright and Susan Foreman? Who knows? It's a busy day for the team as today the press conference to launch the series is held at 5pm in room 222 at the Langham 
a BBC-owned building opposite Broadcasting House in London's West End. Wilson, Whittaker, Lambert and the four regular cast members are all there. 2nd of January 1964. Joe Parks, BBC sales assistant, sends a memo to the BBC's assistant head of copyright inquiring about this serial, Part C, Inside the Spaceship. Such is its murky development that they initially note that there is no two-part serial, nor one with this name. It is then noted, on the 13th of January, that Verity Lambert will be signing this off as an SCTP, a staff contribution to programmes, which requires some paperwork and reference to the Writers Guild, as it is not done for script editors to commission themselves, apart from in the direst emergencies. Consequently, Lambert refers this to J.V. Beasley of the Establishment Department. 6th of January, 1964. Associate producer Mervyn Pinfield is now slated in to direct this third serial. Paddy Russell is now directing a play, My One True Love, for the BBC's First Night Strand, a much more prestigious booking than this children's serial that has riled various BBC departments and now looks on borrowed time. And this serial looks to be an in-house job now out of necessity, to be directed by its associate producer and written by its script editor. One of those would be acceptable if bred from necessity, but to have both smacks of disaster, or at least the brink of it. 7th of January. The production takes a step away from that brink as young Richard Martin, who has just celebrated his 29th birthday, on the 3rd of January, and will shortly go into studio to record the last episode of The Daleks on the 10th of January. Having successfully completed episodes 3 and 6 of the serial in the preceding few weeks, is now deemed worthy of slotting into the director's chair for this serial. Donald Wilson sends Donald Bavistock a memo containing synopses of the next three stories due into production. First up, Inside the Spaceship. Then, Marco Polo to be directed by Waris Hussain, and finally, The Hidden Planet by Malcolm Hulk, to which no director has yet been assigned. 13th of January. Just three days after finishing work on the Dalek serial, and two days after the broadcast of its fourth episode, yes, that's right, the team are currently only recording three episodes ahead of that being broadcast the very next day, and Martin is back on the shop floor, helming rehearsals for this new serial's first episode, The Edge of Destruction, at 239 Uxbridge Road, the Army Drill Hall. It's a technically less complex production than the last story, but it does mean that the action rests entirely on the four lead actors. Joe Parks, today, is notified by phone that this will be a commission that has been run by the Writers Guild. 16th of January, on the last day of rehearsals, Carol Ann Ford is quoted in a newspaper giving viewers a taste of the serial to come when describing how she's finding working on the show. I'm really loving it, she tells Bill Ford of the Ilford Recorder. For instance, during the next few weeks we all go mad. And how often do you get a chance to do that? 17th of January. The Edge of Destruction is recorded at Lime Grove Studio D. During camera rehearsals in the afternoon, the Radio Times takes publicity photographs of the regulars and the results are used as publicity cards for Russell, Hill and Ford. There's a great one taken of Hartnell at the TARDIS controls 
but the famous one of him in the astrakhan hat from the first story ends up as Hartnell's publicity shot. The photo call takes place during the tea break, which is between 3.45 and 4.15pm, after which there is a camera rehearsal until 7pm. Supper is then scheduled until 8pm, line up from 8pm to 8.30pm, and then recording, getting the whole thing in the can, takes place between 8.30pm and 9.45pm. The episode's costs come in at £1,480, just over £1,000 under budget, which is just what the series needs, and so this is doubtless met with great enthusiasm by Lambert Seniors. 6th of February. The Radio Times previews the serial. The accompanying photo, which depicts events from episode 1, actually seems to have been taken during the recording of episode 2. The article restates the premise that the Doctor and Susan are from another world and time, and that they are trying to return Ian and Barbara home to the 20th century. It also emphasises that the ship is still only partially under the Doctor's control. Something not really mentioned anywhere in the story is given as part of the premise for this episode, and so makes for interesting reading. Doctor Who has decided to experiment with the ship's guidance system in a desperate effort to regain his bearing. He juggles with a new combination of levers. There is a violent explosion and the ship stops dead. This text, which is probably written by Whittaker, maybe echoes an earlier or developing aspect of the final story. Or perhaps it's just a piece of enticing hyperbole. It certainly ends on a spooky note. Has the open door admitted a fifth presence, unseen, but nonetheless powerful? As viewers will see, the answer to that enticing suggestion is, um, no, it's a stuck button. 8th of February. The Edge of Destruction is broadcast on BBC television. Its 10.4 million viewers constitute the same number that watched the previous instalment of Doctor Who, the last episode of the Dalek serial. The audience appreciation is 61, lower than the last five Dalek episodes, but higher than that story's first two and all episodes featuring cave people. The Lancashire Evening Telegraph on the day of broadcast runs a story about the series. The article, entitled Just How Wrong Could You Get? Anyone Want a Crystal Ball? Slightly Chipped by Will Carter, suggests that Doctor Who should be moved to help bolster Monday or Thursday night viewing. So good is it, and so well it has it done in the ratings. Carter also has a slight spoiler for viewers who, despite having episode titles, are ignorant about the number of episodes each new story has. This particular predicament, I gather, won't detain them very long. They'll be out of it next Saturday and the good ship TARDIS will be off on another galactic lucky dip. Carter has been impressed with Doctor Who, especially as, when he first heard of it, he thought it would just be an amiable filler-type serial. Hence his offer of a chipped crystal ball. If he'd seen the production documentation, he might have realised his crystal ball was very nearly right. The Bournemouth Evening Echo uses today to ask why there are no adult serials like Doctor Who. Doctor Who's success is understandable, it states. It is interesting, exciting and unusual, and has the scientific element which is always popular. There is no doubt that a large proportion of the viewers who watch it and enjoy it are adults. It's time we grown-ups were given another good science fiction serial, 
a real thriller strong enough to keep us away from the bingo or send us hurrying home from work. If Doctor Who can draw nearly seven million viewers, a first-class adult serial would have an audience twice that size. The South Wales Evening Argus does a little preview of the episode. Doctor Who and Companions, whose adventures regularly hold the attention of an audience of six and three-quarter million viewers, begin a new time and space journey tonight and end up prisoners of the fourth dimension. Note that the viewing figures being trotted out in these articles are a bit low and behind the times, but certainly seem to be as a result of some kind of official release. As the Wolverhampton Express and Star says today, Though they have left the Thals and the Daleks behind, the crew of the BBC spaceship TARDIS have further troubles ahead of them. In the next episode of Doctor Who, which has been commanding an audience of nearly 7 million viewers, the time travellers fail in their attempt to re-enter the 20th century. The TARDIS develops a fault. Doctor Who is unable to correct it, and he and his companions are becalmed in a time vacuum as prisoners of the fourth dimension. 10th of February. Whitaker is given formal clearance to write the story. Good job too, as he already has, and the first part has been on telly. A memo from J.V. Beasley, establishment assistant, to Verity Lambert, approves Whitaker to write the two episodes, which the handwritten note call Inside the Spaceship, for a fee of 250 guineas per episode, or a total of £525. 12th of February. The BBC Programme Review Board convened to discuss the latest programmes, and head honcho, controller of BBC programme Stuart Hood, expresses the opinion that the scene in which Susan brandishes the scissors and then stabs her space bed with them digressed from the code of violence in programmes. Doreen Stevens, head of family programming, is not an entirely objective objector to the episode. The family programming department is newly formed out of what had been children's and women's programmes, and its operatives feel that Doctor Who should have been under their jurisdiction all along, not that of the drama, series and serials department. So it is no surprise that Stevens also makes her dislike for the scissors scene known. This results in a few harsh words for Lambert, who learns not to use such imitatable violence again. 17th of August, 1967. The episode is cleared for wiping today, although copies survive at BBC Enterprises, including an Arabic dubbed version of both episodes of the story and a Spanish version of this episode, The Edge of Destruction. The series has been available in Spain with episodes entitled La Edad de Destrucción, translation The Age of Destruction, and Al borde de desastre, at the edge of disaster. The serial is also marketed as Beyond the Sun, which was actually a working title for the second story, now commonly referred to as The Daleks, and would continue to be vaguely connected with this story for many years hence, including in Peter Haining's Doctor Who A Celebration book. 22nd of November 1978. An extract from the Arabic-dubbed version of the episode is shown on the BBC programme Nationwide. The What Let's start with the title. Yes, it is largely called Inside the Spaceship on Documentation, 
although it's just called Serial C on the scripts, which as titles go, isn't much worse. But as this podcast is brought to you by someone who learned his who in the 1980s, as far as too much information is concerned, the story we are talking about is called The Edge of Destruction, for that is how it is known on the books and videos and DVDs of the story. It was occasionally suggested in early fan lore that this was an AKA Beyond the Sun, but that title, as we learnt in previous episodes, was an alternative for the first Dalek story. Is there a right or wrong answer, therefore? Well, it's whatever you want to call it, of course. But we all know what we mean, whether we call it Inside the Spaceship or The Edge of Destruction, so let's not start an argument or one of us might reach for the scissors. You never know. What they might have done in the end was scribbled everything out on the script, put a line through Serial C and written the actual title in felt-tip pen on the scripts at the last minute. It's not the only thing that would have happened to with this story. David Whittaker receives no story editor credit. This is because the Writers Guild of Great Britain took a dim view of script editors commissioning themselves. This potentially denied other writers' work, of course, and made an act of nepotism positively masturbatory. Whittaker gets his credit then at the beginning of the episode over the opening action, but it reads simply by David Whittaker, whereas on previous stories the authorial credit has been written by. The episode begins with a filmed reprise of the events from last week. For the third time in a row, the story begins with an instalment which only features the regular cast. This pattern will be broken when Marco Polo begins in a fortnight, but viewers would be forgiven for thinking that each Doctor Who story starts with the four regulars only, getting to grips with what the latest adventure is about. Bar perhaps a near miss with the arc in space, the opening instalment does have two actors' names on the credits aside from the regulars, even though their contributions are only vocal, so it can count if you want to. This never again happens in the whole of the series' history. In fact, the only other episode in the series' history to credit only the regulars is next week's. Costume-wise, the cast, of course, retain what they were wearing on last week's cliffhanger. Except Caroline Ford has got rid of her socks, having not enjoyed that particular part of her costuming, which, unlike the others, she had got into at the very end of the Dalek story. So she's actually wearing what she sported in An Unearthly Child, whereas the others are in their scarrow fatigues. Set designer Raymond Cusick, largely using existing elements of the TARDIS interior design, enlarges the seating area previously featured in The Dead Planet, adding a corridor to the two bedrooms. The food machine is now outside one of those two. The reflecting floor plates at the base of the console used in the broadcast version of An Unearthly Child are reintroduced. These are actually specified in the script. When the Doctor goes to use the scanner, Whittaker specifies that he is standing near the control column but not standing on the silvered floor around the column. Maybe this suggests that this piece of scenery contributes to Ian's electrocution in the first episode, as that's what the Doctor is trying to avoid now. Also, a photographic roundel blow-up is added to the main control room this week, and the TARDIS sets are all linked. 
the story features the first musical score to come entirely from stock. The tracks used in this episode are Mood 3, composed by Eric Sidé, for the opening of the episode where the caption is over William Hartnell on the floor. Space Agitato, also by Sidé, is the plinky-plonky bit when Susan attacks Ian with the scissors. This is actually a looped section of the actual piece. Anesthesia, Sidé again, is the wooey-wurry sound which plays when the Doctor, Ian and Barbara talk in the living area and is heard again as the Doctor checks everyone is asleep and bends over the console before the cliffhanger. If you recognise it, it's because it returns to Doctor Who in the War Machines and again for the moonscape eeriness in the moon base. Alan Langford's Strangers in the Fog is the piece augmenting the shots of the planet and stars on the scanner, whilst the gong crash used at the end of that planet sequence and the end of the clock melting sequence is from Stress and Anxiety, another Langford number. The main track for the melting clock sequence is Conflict Number 2 by Eric Sidé, and that is another track reused in the Moonbase. The P as B paperwork doesn't actually identify all of the music used in the story, but over the years this has been pieced together by musical scholars. As well as the music, there are six sound effects provided for the whole story by Brian Hodgson of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, including the jungle atmosphere and animal noises over the image of the planet Quinnis, and the unearthly growl accompanying the TARDIS doors opening. The music costs are given in the brochures that accompany the discs containing them. Each 30-second queue would cost the production 20 shillings to licence. Any more than 30 seconds and another 20 shillings is added. Compared to the music for the previous story, specially composed by Tristram Carey, which came in at around £42 for an episode's worth, you can see why stock music becomes an attractive option, especially on a money-saving two-parter. In the script, when Susan wakes and looks at Barbara, the instruction is that the camera should focus and defocus on Barbara's face from Susan's point of view. The director does not take the script up on this suggestion. When Susan pulls away with a headache, Barbara was to examine her, despite Susan's request for her not to, and to say... You look all right. You're working late tonight, Miss Wright, says Ian when he wakes up. This seems to be an echo of their first exchange at the show's very beginning. Oh, not gone yet, he says there. When Susan is in her bedroom, the script makes a request that isn't fulfilled now, but is an idea that will be used in future episodes. The directions say... If possible, one of these circular wall pieces should be open, as if it is a cupboard from which she has taken a first aid kit. She is also looking at various bottles and tubes. They must all look alien, that is to say, not like the things one would normally expect to find. The wire-backed chair in Susan's bedroom is from the Swedish company Dahlens Dahlem, and they were pretty new at the time. They still sell as retro vintage items today, and if you were to buy one online, it would set you back around $780, but that'd be a small price to pay to do edge-of-destruction furniture cosplay in your own home. The futuristic beds, on the other hand, are special commissions, built by regular prop makers Shawcraft, so you'll have to put your own together if you want them. 
The script requests that what comes out of the food machine for Susan is rather like a pound carton of sugar, plainly wrapped, a wax container. The script also requests a shot of dark corners when Susan gets a little agitated. This request for the camera to look into the ship's dark corners happens again later, but it's not a motif the director decides to go with. When Ian asks the women if they were responsible for the doors closing, the script has Susan say, We're both down here. But this is replaced by the slightly creepier, We haven't moved. The script is all about the roundels in Susan's bedroom again. There aren't any in the finished episode. This teenager's bedroom's walls are very plain. She presses a switch and three of the circular wall pieces descend and a wall bed is revealed, it says. It also wants the camera to focus and defocus on Ian as it had done on Barbara earlier, but once again, this doesn't happen. The chief deviation from the script is that, in the scissors sequence, Susan holds them, takes a step, and then she drops them before falling unconscious along the bed. She does not scream like a madwoman and stab her bendy space bed with them, so this must have been worked out by the actors and the director downwind of David Whittaker. After this sequence, there is a recording break. The recording then picks up with a close-up shot of the scissors to signify the passage of time. The Doctor's line after the recording break, in which he supposes that the ship must have put them down somewhere, is not in the script, and so is a late addition. The scene was supposed to begin with Barbara asking where they are, which is now a rejoinder to this new opening line. In the script, Barbara was to say, no, when the doctor asks if she has been touching the controls, but Hill opts for a more powerful, silent reply, simply walking away from the old man. Good choice. There's a mix-up. When Ian has asked if an animal or a man could have got into the ship, he says them the other way round than they are in the script, Hartnell declines to give Hill the chance to finish her line. She is supposed to suggest an intelligence before he comes in with his observation that this isn't logical. So she says it after his interruption, which means he has to repeat his line, but with a, as I said, in front of it. Hartnell's line about being very patient with her is an addition too, and it's fair to say they're all circling around what is on the page here, rather than charting the exact course of the writer's words. Most of Hartnell's young mans to Ian are additions as well. There is a recording break after Ian joins the Doctor at the fault locator, with the break used to capture the instrumentation blurring from the Doctor's point of view, which then becomes the end of this sequence. The food machine is then taken down and removed as it is no longer needed. Anything to expedite home time. Recording then begins again properly in Susan's bedroom. In the bedroom scene, the script wants us to show that Susan has the scissors sequestered in her hand before the dialogue begins. But this doesn't happen. Barbara takes the scissors off Susan much earlier in the script. After she's told her to give them to her, she wrests them from the teenager. In the episode that we have, though, the tension is maintained for longer, with the dialogue played out alongside the scissor brandishing. After the bedroom scene, there's another recording break this time to reposition the cameras. The programme gets rather meta when the TARDIS scanners show the English countryside accompanied by some birdsong, 
with the doctor stating that it is just a photograph, which in reality is just what it is. The next photograph is of the planet Quinnis, which gives viewers a tantalising suggestion about previous adventures had by the Doctor and Susan that we have not been a party to. The possibility of off-screen adventures is one that will expand the series' canon, let's say, quite a lot in future years. Susan was meant to say that it was six or seven journeys back, but on screen this is reduced to four or five. The sequence of the planet on the monitor is specified in the script as being Earth. The starscape was to fade to a blank screen before the explosion slash blinding light, but this doesn't ultimately happen, and the planet clearly isn't Earth. The planet shown on the scanner is also seen at the end of the Space Museum, representing Scaro. It's possible that the same sequence of images is also used at the end of Galaxy 4 to illustrate Kemble, as the script descriptions are very similar. It reads, We feature a million stars. Well, it actually says starts, but they clearly mean stars. Then, a closer shot, as a planet is isolated. Mix, shot of the chosen planet. As this is specified as a photo caption, and they haven't been averse to reusing this planet, it is not unreasonable to guess that we might see it again there. There's a great stage direction for when the Doctor accuses Ian and Barbara of sabotage. So far, the Doctor has been pleasant, if sarcastic. Now he stiffens and his eyes gleam malevolently. And it's fair to say, Hartnell does what is required. Unfortunately, then, when he accuses them of knocking him and Susan unconscious, it is he who is on the brink of disaster and he doesn't quite manage to get the words out. In Barbara's excellent speech... The Doctor's rhubarbed interjections and Barbara's point that the heroism the teachers did on Scaro was not just for them, but for him and Susan as well, are additions to the script. Before Barbara was to react to the melting clock, Susan was intended to tell her grandfather that Barbara is, in her big speech, talking sense. In the end, it looks like this would probably have held up the action, so Hill goes straight from her chastising into her horological fear so Ford only gets to approach Hartnell without time to get a line out. The close-up of Ian's wristwatch is not a close-up of William Russell's wrist. It's camera four, doubtless trained on a crew member. After Barbara has thrown her watch away, Susan was to have a line accounting for what they've just witnessed. We're somewhere where time doesn't exist, when nothing exists except us. Interestingly, when there is a young man in the script for the Doctor, when he's telling Ian there is no time for manners, Hartnell decides not to use it. He was also to say that they are all poised in the cosmos, but he doesn't. The script wants Barbara to be wearing an attractive nightrobe, but Miss Wright instead opts for a black number. At the end of her chat with Susan, she closes her eyes to sleep, but in the script she sits on her bed, suddenly she looks about her. She is conscious of being alone. The stage directions for the final sequence of the episode have the Doctor muttering to himself, that's all right, and yes. The cliffhanger is described thus. Suddenly his head moves up. He is aware of something behind him. Two hands come into frame behind the Doctor. 
the doctor turns, see you of his face. Director Richard Martin instead decides that we need to have the mysterious hands around the doctor's throat instead. The closing titles read, title music, Ron Grainer, BBC Radiophonic Workshop, dropping the with thee that connected Grainer and the publicly funded Wizards of Sound on previous episodes. The Who Richard Martin Richard Martin, the director of The Edge of Destruction, was born Richard Martin Thomas in Battersea, London, next to the Dog's Home, on the 3rd of January 1935, and then moved to his grandmother's house in Grafton Square in London. Said grandmother had been an actress, as had his grandfather, but they had forbidden Richard's father, Arnold, from entering the profession because, she said, he wasn't tall enough. So Arnold persisted, but only as a committed amateur. Arnold instead became a telegraphist and was an ARP warden during the war. He didn't get conscripted as telegraphy was a reserved profession. Richard's mother, Mary, was a pianist and teacher who gave private lessons. And Richard and his two brothers, Anthony and Malcolm, the fourth, the comedian Hugh Thomas, came much later, moved with the family from Clapham to Streatham and then to a flat in Denham, Buckinghamshire, which backed onto the film studios there. Their close neighbour in Denham was a young director called David Lean, who, for casting purposes, checked out the local amateurs. Richard's father was in the ghost train and caught Lean's attention because, according to Richard, Arnold was a good, talented actor. Arnold then went to Lean to read for a film. He was unsuccessful, but at this casting, Lean asked Arnold if he had children. He needed one for his upcoming movie, Brief Encounter. Richard, keen and precocious, and his elder brother, surly and dismissive of theatrical types, were seen, and Richard, unsurprisingly, ended up cast in the key role of Bobby Jesson in the 1946 film, which would become a classic. Brief Encounter led quickly to another big-screen role for young Richard, as young Sam Donovan in Hungry Hill, 1947. In both films, he is credited under his birth name, Richard Thomas. Richard was educated at the prep school Gayhurst in Gerrard's Cross, but was, and this is his own assessment, a dunce. He then went to the King Alfred School, Golders Green, and the teacher there, René Soskin, cast him as Oberon in A Midsummer Night's Dream in her open-air production, and then as Richard III and Hamlet, which he played aged 16. Soskin was well-connected, and young Richard was introduced to Anthony Quayle, which led to Richard being hired to appear in the 1952 season at the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre, Stratford-upon-Avon, which would later become the Royal Shakespeare Company. Richard, at 17, started in the crowd in Coriolanus, but was soon playing fleance to the Macbeth of Ralph Richardson and a shape to his Prospero. The following year, he was, amongst others, the ghost of Prince Edward to Marius Goring's Richard III and Stefano to the Shylock of Michael Redgrave in The Merchant of Venice. Here he rubbed shoulders with another future Doctor Who director, Michael Hayes, and with the actor Bernard Kay, who he would go on to cast many times on television, including in Doctor Who in The Dalek Invasion of Earth. After two years then with the company, Glenn Byam Shaw, the director, dismissed him. 
he was told he was an experiment that hadn't worked and packed off to rep, where Richard, undeterred by this put-down, I was very cocky, he says, feels he really learned the business. He went to Derby and then to Cleethorpes, where he had to learn how to act against the loud chiming every quarter of an hour of the clock next to the theatre. He worked at the Lyric Theatre Hammersmith, directed by John Gielgud in the Cherry Orchard, but it was at the Nottingham Playhouse for a couple of seasons where he really learned how to be an actor. He was also working with Bernard Kay again, and his roles included the key role of the battle-scarred Captain Stanhope in World War I play Journey's End, Florizel in A Winter's Tale, and Henry in Wojtek, which he played, according to the stage, as a neurotically intense, strangely old man. From 1958, he was ensconced at the Belgrade Theatre Company in Coventry, where the company again included actors he would employ in Doctor Who. Malcolm Rogers, Dracula in The Chase, Patrick O'Connell, Ashton in The Dalek Invasion of Earth, Jean Conroy, the young woman in the wood in The Dalek Invasion of Earth, and Kenton Moore, the Roboman extra at the beginning of The Dalek Invasion of Earth and later Noah in The Ark in Space. His roles at Coventry varied in size, as was the lot of any rep player, but highlights included Gerald Popkiss in Rookery Nook and Charlie in Charlie's Aunt. Richard was unsatisfied with some of the parts he was playing and faced with the prospect of transferring to London's Royal Court, playing a small part in Arnold Wesker's Roots, he asked Brian Bailey, the artistic director, if instead of transferring, he could direct. After one successful production, Bailey made Martin associate director at the Belgrade, and the two of them did a production of Never Had It So Good by future Doctor Who producer John Wiles, but during the run, Bailey was killed in a car accident. Richard directed a few more productions at the Belgrade in late 1959 and 1960, and then directed at the Guildford Theatre later that year and again in 1962. His production of Long Day's Journey in Tonight featured Ian Thompson, David Blake Kelly and Dennis Chinnery, all from The Chase, whilst Piermaster had Thompson, Kay and Moore again. The second half of his able production of The Spectators, according to the stage, had a vitality which offsets the artifice of the first. In the meantime, Richard had broken into television acting as well. He was in episodes of Ivanhoe, ITV Television Playhouse and Maygray between 1958 and 1961. He became the associate director of the Guildford Theatre, but wanted to work more on screen with the visual potentialities it provided for a director with his vision. He got an interview with the BBC whilst directing Corin Redgrave, no less, in Henry V, and so was able to impress the panel by name-dropping the quality of the company he was keeping, and so joined BBC Television on the director's course. The corporation was actually short of directors, so someone experienced and from theatre was in the right place and the right time. One of his exact contemporaries on the director's course was the Keys of Marinus's John Gorry. Richard's first directing job for the corporation was the play Miranda and the Salmon in August 1963, starring Sylvia Sims and Jack Watling. Richard's Doctor Who work has, of course, been covered elsewhere and will be looked at in detail in future instalments of this podcast, so let's concentrate instead on some of his other TV credits. 1965's The Big Spender was a thriller about a policeman trying to cover up a crime. 
Martin directed the first episode and several others, casting Peter Hawkins and Patrick O'Connell from The Dalek Invasion of Earth and Malcolm Rogers from The Chase and, indeed, most things that Martin directed, to be honest, among others, including the actress Suzanne Neve, whom Richard had married, having worked with her in theatre. Quick Before They Catch Us was a 1966 series about a group of teenagers, played by the likes of David Griffin, Colin Bell and Pamela Franklin, originally chosen for the Dalek invasion of Earth to take over from Carol Ann Ford, getting embroiled in adventures. Martin directed the first four-part story, Power of Three, but thinks of it now as a bit of a disaster. The whole story was based around a real-life camera obscura in Bristol, found by some kids which led them into adventures. But Martin was obliged to do the whole thing in Lime Grove without a camera obscura. It was to be the first of many run-ins he would have with a producer who disappointed him. Martin's habit of changing the script if he found it wanting did not go down well with William Sterling. My answer was, if you don't like what I'm doing, do it your f***ing self, says Richard now. He went to Scotland to shoot Ransom for a Pretty Girl with Nike Auriki and James Cosmo, a big break for the then young actor with a bright future ahead of him. Richard says that the BBC didn't really know what to do with him and that he was difficult and almost by default he was handed over to religious programming to make Strindberg's Easter in 1968 with Frank Finlay, Felicity Kendall and Dinsdale Landon, which became a high point for him. He left the BBC shortly after, though, to become freelance. He felt the serials department where he was placed was underfunded and rather looked down upon compared to plays, and this led to his dissatisfaction. Glenda Jackson asked Richard to direct more episodes of 1971's Elizabeth R, but he was unable to, as producer Roderick Graham had already allocated them. It was a job he was satisfied with the end results of, though. He was also happy with his work on 1972's Adam Smith with Andrew Keir, who had, of course, appeared in the big screen version of one of Martin's TV stories, The Dalek Invasion of Earth, and Janet Munro, getting a heartbreaking performance from the latter, who was, at the time, racked by alcoholism. At my best, I was working closely with the actor and was able to anticipate and understand where they were going, he observes. In 1976, he worked on the David Nobbs play Ah, Mr Wignall, which he directed adroitly and shot the play tidily, according to the stage. As for his production of Watch All Night in 1980, using his London locations to underline Tess's isolation, Richard Martin's direction built on a slowish start to become fast-moving and full of incident, said one review. His favourite piece was Rose Tremaine's Findings on a Late Afternoon, which starred John Nettles and featured an appearance from a then little-known David Bradley, later to play William Hartnell himself. Richard's 1981 production was The first and only time I did what I was more interested in, dream sequences and emotional tangles as opposed to police cars. By a coincidence of personnel, The Brief, in 1983, had two-thirds of its directing roster made up from the men in charge of The Edge of Destruction, as Martin and Frank Cox were both hired to helm the show. A self-confessed, expensive and time-consuming director, Richard Martin continued with a lot of television and had a long career, which continued into the last decade of the 20th century with All Creatures Great and Small. 
Producers by now needed directors who would finish on time and on budget. And, Richard says, I can say with some pride, I did neither. And so he found himself employed less frequently at a time when he was also teaching at Mount View Theatre School. He presided over their course Acting for Camera for nearly a decade. By this time, he had no more contacts in the industry, and so he retired. He's still in touch with Malcolm Rogers, his Dracula from The Chase, that actor he used a lot. Richard says he was often accused of casting his friends in everything, and the cast lists of his programmes bears that out. He is still also married to Sue, and lives in happy retirement with several dogs and two vintage motorcars, an Austin 7 and an Austin Heavy 12, which he enjoys tinkering with. He's currently learning the mandolin, having found the guitar a bit big for his 87-year-old hands. So you can say, I'm a failed musician. In my youth, I was a failed sculptor. There's a sculptural element in some of my most successful TV directing. There's a three-dimensional element to it. And I've just finished writing a six-part adaptation of Strindberg's Hemser Borner, which has only taken 20 years. So he's keeping busy, but not so busy that he couldn't give his time to ensure that this biography of him is complete and as accurate as possible. So thanks to Richard for that. And so ends another episode of Doctor Who. And what a strange one it is. The onus is almost entirely on the cast, who acted in a number of distinctive ways. Hartnell has a malevolent gleam in his eye as his paranoia and mistrust about his travelling companions takes hold, and he emits a menacing, calculating hostility. In contrast, Jacqueline Hill gets the meatiest moment, bringing the old man down a peg or two and, it seems, shaming him into a more contrite demeanour. It is a companion's lot that immediately after her dramatic hero moment, she has to be terrified by the sight of a clock, albeit a melting one. Carol Ann Ford floats around, channeling more unearthly aspects of the child she is often called to play, and her stranger, distant look, coupled with her occasional alien malice, makes her an unsettling presence. The scene with the scissors is deeply disturbing, if you're so inclined. There's some probably unintentional but nevertheless effectively giddy, wobbly camera movement in on her as she frantically stabs her bendy spacebed, and it's all strange and unusual and a bit alarming, especially as scissors are such a recognisable household object. Never mind a yeti on your loo in Tooting Beck. How about a schoolgirl stabbing you to death with a pair of pinking shears in Finsbury Park? William Russell, too, adds to the weirdness by playing much of this with a detached, strange emphasis. Given how the story turns out, this must be either because the TARDIS is playing with his mind or he's had a bump on his head. But still, coupled with the shadowy lighting on the TARDIS interiors and the eerie, unsettling incidental music, all from the cupboard, then you have an ingenious interlude considering the options available to the production team and the haste with which this was put together. The stock music is so effective, with the track Anesthesia triggering all sorts of remembrances of science fiction-tinged unease. You imagine, you've heard it everywhere. It is like the best of Doctor Who, familiar but unsettling, a perfect accompaniment for a programme designed to scare us in the comfort of our post-tea-time haze. And, as we have observed, even though we have had 
chases through Paleolithic forests and machine creatures in metal cities. The audience is used to an opening instalment being one of very few answers and no supporting cast. So, to all intents and purposes, this could be the start of an epic adventure somewhere else. It certainly re-injects some of the uneasiness into the dynamic of the regulars, and ultimately, it's a mood piece. Although the script sets up the idea of a story, someone has broken in, there is a mysterious force controlling events within the ship. This creates an atmosphere of paranoia, and the offbeat playing of the main protagonists, especially Russell and Ford, creates a strange, unsettling vibe, with Hill, the voice of reason, bursting the balloon and causing the Doctor to settle everybody down, before he takes charge and re-establishes himself as the series' lead, but a malevolent and manipulative one, up to no good whilst the others sleep. And yet, he's imperiled by the episode's end. We don't trust him, but we root for him still. Oh, and a rash action is worse than no action at all. Doctor Who, The Edge of Destruction, featured title music by Ron Grainer, BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The designer was Raymond Cusick, and the associate producer, Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, a series of explosions rocks the ship as it heads towards destruction, and the crew prepare for the end. That's next time on Doctor Who, Too Much Information. Next episode, The Brink of Disaster, or isn't that just literally another way of saying The Edge of Destruction? Too Much Information, The Edge of Destruction, was written and presented by me, Toby Hado, with extra special thanks to Richard Martin, and thanks to Simon Guerrier, Mark Ayres, Richard Bignall, Steve Broster, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, Graham Kibble-White, Jim Sankster, Reese Williams, and Reese Williams' dad. Additional voices were provided by Chrissy Bone and Shirley Houston. The series consultant is Richard Bignall, and the music for this podcast has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, Far Too Much Information, which is for now exclusive to patrons, who also qualify for bonus material, early releases and other exclusives, as well as pictures of my dog. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast, so if you want to hear writers Toby Whithouse and Peter Harness chipping in with contributions to the viewing of The God Complex and Kill the Moon, or a bunch of American school kids giving hope for the future with their assessment of the return of Dr. Mysterio, then head over there right now. References Richard Martin kindly gave me a whole afternoon to discuss his career outside of Doctor Who, thanks to him and to his wife Sue for their indulgence. I have consulted various reference works for this podcast, Doctor Who, A Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, with contributions from Jonathan Morris, 
Alistair McGowan and Richard Atkinson, and much of it based, of course, on those fantastic early archives features by Andrew Pixley. Richard Bignall's Nothing at the End of the Lane is one of the best things ever and is great for this period of the show. How Stammers and Walkers, The Sixties and The First Doctor Handbook are both excellent and uncovered much of what we now take for granted. Ditto J. Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference as well, and I also subscribe to the British newspaper archive Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are vital resources, but also places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, so proceed with caution. I would also like to acknowledge the immense amount of notes and material provided for this episode by Simon Gerrier, who has much David Whittaker-related material which he has meticulously filed. I walk in the shadows of giants, albeit giants who probably need to take vitamin D supplements due to the amount of time they spend inside looking over paperwork. The hard work of music research around this story was done by Rhys Williams, and some of it is presented by The Evil Dalek on YouTube, who goes into greater detail and deserves the credit for much of which we currently know about the sounds in this episode, and I am again indebted to Rhys for showing me this. I would like to thank the many patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Stephen Moffat, Ruben Herfindahl, Adam Parker, James Bell, Lee Wakeley, Drew, Stephen Smith, a.k.a. Dalek Fan, Risto Matti Saurillo, Peter Blackett, Andy Parkinson, Mark Sandham, Legion Henderson, Ian K. McLachlan, Joel Ahrens, the glory-hungry Christopher Meredith, Sam Estirem, John Rumfit, Nathan Martin, Sam Hollingsworth, John Arnold, Shanti Day, Graham Knott, Murray Robertson, Jeff Sear, Andrew Nixon, Neil Little, Phil Mitchell, Mary Ann Plechetti, Ben Cook, Ben Cowdell, Chris Hyam, Fanman Sang, Brian Sinclair, Paul Gibbons, Pete Lack, Andy Benison, Pete Burns, Peter Harness, Ronald Hayden, Rob Leonard, Richard Straw, Nick Tedston, Robin Bland, David Brody, Hugh Buchtman, Tim Burrows, Anthony Carroll, Phil Chapman, Ralph Chilton, Susan Christian, Steve Churchill, Mark Clues, Graham Cooley, Charles Coffin, and together at last, Dylan Rees and Nigel Bromley. Thanks to them and to all of the others. If you would like to join their number, go to patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke, where, as you heard, you can get advance and bonus material, you get special access, and you are very, very much further ahead with these releases than the general public. The general public, that makes no sense. Than the riffraff. <laughs> uh, so yes, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. If you cannot commit to a monthly process that Patreon is, and I totally understand that, times are tough, please go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. If ever you enjoy these on a one-off basis and I sound particularly hungry or needy, you can give any amount uh, on any number of occasions you like, even just a one-off if you so desire. But anything is, of course, appreciated. As for Patreon, uh, because it is monthly, uh, you have different tiers. The cheapest is £3 a month, and for that you get about three podcast releases per week or other extra things as well, you know, but but three, three programmes uh, or pieces of archive material 
per week. So uh, for £3 a month, that works out, I think, at about 25p each. But not if you sign up for a year in advance, because then you get a 10% discount on top of that, whatever tier you're at. The tiers go up in value, um, and therefore, as do the goodies. But most things are available at the uh, cheapest level, because I don't like denying people stuff. It seems wrong. So... Um, uh, yeah, I just uh, I just leave it to people to do what they want. But most things are available at the three pound tier. And I'm very grateful to everybody. But as I understand that uh, money is tight for all of us. Do you know what costs you nothing? Going to iTunes or wherever you get these podcasts and giving me a five star review. That really, really helps to separate these from the very crowded uh, landscape out there of Doctor Who podcasts, all of which are very, very, very good indeed. So a five-star review really helps to, uh, to 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 help these to stand out. And a couple of lines of review telling listeners what they can expect is really, really helpful. So please do that. I'd be most grateful. Come and see me do comedy every Tuesday at Excess Malarkey Comedy Club in Manchester. There's an archive online at twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey of the online shows that we did during lockdown where we had comedians from all over the world. And so there's selected highlights there, twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey. And that's also where we do our monthly online Twitch show, which we've carried on doing, even though hopefully, as I record this, there is not a trace of plague left in the world. And I always do an after credits bit as well. And this is it. But I'm very tired. And I got you. I got an hour out of part one of The Edge of Destruction. No new sets. No guest cast. Uh, hard, hardly any. So I've done OK. So I think you can you can lump it um, because um, I've got lots to do. And the test match is on. I'm recording this a mid test match in order to get it out on time. So go away. In, in the nicest possible way. How's that?